Hello, my name is Peter Field, leader of the Pandora Project and the Triple Vision Podcast team. As what often happens with podcasts, we record our sessions two and three weeks in advance. And sometimes events precede these recordings prior to them airing on our podcast channel. This is the case this time. Last Wednesday, the Pandora Project team met to discuss future podcasts. We are all there. Myself, David Best, Hannah Levitt, Charlene Ayotte, and John Ray. And then sadly and shockingly, two days later, John was gone. His chair was empty. John passed away suddenly on Friday. John will always be remembered as a tireless advocate, someone who gave everything that he had for his community. In fact, I believe he was advocating right up until the very last moment. At the end of today's episode, listeners will hear Hannah talking about what our episode in two weeks will be. In fact, it's with John Ray, recorded two weeks ago. John will be talking about his advocacy throughout the 70s and 80s. But for today, we hold this space for you, John. We dedicate this podcast to you. Rest in peace, Penguin. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision Podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello, I'm David Best, your host in bringing you the Triple Vision Podcast. Today we're going to shift our focus to advocacy. And with me, I have Hannah Levitt and Peter Field from the Pandora team to share with us what they learned about the early days of advocacy in Quebec, Canada. So Hannah, what have we got for us today? Hi, David. So today we're going to have two guests with us. Our first guest is going to be a, a posthumous interview with Jack Layton, former leader of the federal NDP party who passed away several years ago. He's involved in this story because he is the great grandson of Philip E. Layton of the Montreal Association for the Blind. And he's going to be talking a bit about his great-grandfather and the formation of the first organization for the blind in Canada in 1908. It's very special that we have recordings of Jack Layton. We were able to get these recordings uh, by contacting his son, Michael Layton, who's a city councillor in uh, Toronto. We had contacted Mike to see if uh, he could tell us a story about his uh, great-great-grandfather, Philip E. Layton. And uh, while he didn't have a, a lot of knowledge about that, he turned over these recordings to us. So what listeners gonna, are going to hear right off the top is Jack telling the story about his how his great-grandfather lost his vision. He, at the time, was in England and uh, chopping wood and got a splinter of wood in his eye, which resulted in an infection that spread to both eyes and, and lost his vision. So what view uh, listeners will hear is Jack talking about if penicillin had been uh, around at the time, 
that his great grandfather would not have lost his vision. So let's have a listen. So as I was saying, had penicillin not been invented, or had penicillin been invented, I should say, uh, my great grandpa, who knows, probably never would have come to Canada, might have, but we can't be sure, because he would have kept his sight. But with no penicillin, uh, the infection in his eye nerve moved from the one eye to the other, and he was totally blinded. So here you have a blind teenager who'd been taught to play the piano, uh, was quite proficient at it, uh, was already composing things and so on, um, and his father was a piano maker. Uh, he uh, was taught to um, tune pianos, because that's what you did with blind folk. It was one of the things that they could do better than most others, because they had to be so focused on sound. So they could hear the the nuances of the of the strings of the piano to make sure they were right in the right harmonics, things that it takes an enormous amount of training uh, to hear. So anyway, he ended up tuning piano for the Queen and the royal family. Uh, we understand he may have played for the royal family. I don't have the details on that, um, but they may uh, exist in some family histories. Uh, but at the end of the day, he said, you know, uh, I'm being treated like a cripple, and I'm tired of being treated like a cripple. I want to make my own way. I'm going to go and join my uh, older brother. He said, I want to go to Canada. So off he gets. He's a teenage, young, young 20s maybe, uh, comes to Canada. He leaves a, a correspondent uh, back in uh, England, who he later it was his nurse, the young nurse volunteer, who helped him walk around the grounds of the special hospital that they had for blind kids. Uh, he ended up fall, falling, not only falling in love with her, but he went to Canada, and 10 years later he uh, asked her to come and, and marry him and come with him. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And uh, Alice Layton uh, came to join her, this young guy who uh, she had helped to uh, learn to get around, to learn to see without eyes. Uh, and uh, the two of them became a force in Montreal, joining with the brother. Uh, they started out, uh, uh, he thought he had had, one reason he came to Canada was because he thought he'd secured a job as a, um, an organist at a church in the Montreal area, because he was very talented, came highly recommended. They didn't mention in his uh, resume that, uh, that he was blind. Uh, they didn't think it was relevant. Well, when he showed up blind with the dark black glasses uh, that uh, you still see in pictures of him today, they said, uh, I'm sorry, the job is taken. And I guess he got his first experience of discrimination against the disabled. Uh, he took that up again in many ways later on. <laughs> He, uh, he, he was going to fight back. So, uh, but first he had to get settled in, so he tuned, started tuning pianos, which you could do. Uh, there was a, a rich a class in Westmount that had pianos, and there were institutions around the city that had pianos and organs and what have you. So uh, he was tuning someone's piano. This is sort of a, we've never been able to say whose piano or give the details here, but in the late 1800s, there he was, he was tuning pianos, early 1800s, and said, uh, someone said, young lad, you know, uh, you've done a wonderful job tuning our piano. We'd like to upgrade uh, and, and get a, a higher quality piano for our daughter, who seems to have some interest in, in, in music. And he said, what, what do you recommend? What's, what are the best uh, pianos? He says, well, there's a number of good uh, pianos produced. 
uh, but the best ones are our pianos. Uh, what do you mean, our pianos? Well, uh, the pianos that uh, Leighton, Leighton uh, pianos. Oh, I had no idea uh, that you produced pianos. So here we are with uh, this young piano tuner, having just uh, convinced someone to buy uh, a Leighton Brothers piano. He goes back and talks to his brother and says, we just sold our first piano. And the, and the brother says, what are you, nuts? <laughs> we don't, what are you talking about? There isn't a Leighton Brothers piano, which there wasn't. Uh, but he had a relationship with the piano manufacturers and said, I'd like you to manufacture a piano for me uh, and uh, we'll have Leighton Brothers label on it and it will have the following improvements and characteristics that will make it different than the one you produce for others. It was essentially a Heinzmann uh, type of piano, so we understand. And, uh, and he also did the same thing when it came to pump organs, the kind of organs that uh, you pump away and it produce, sends uh, air through reeds, uh, and many different reeds, and you pull out stops, and out comes a beautiful, uh, beautiful music for a small church uh, or, uh, or a, a, an affluent home. And uh, anyway, they were very successful in business, sold a lot of pianos, because remember, in those days, people didn't have phonographic equipment, so if you wanted music in the house, you had to have your own piano and have somebody who knew how to play it. If you wanted to sing, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd sing along with it with a piano, and you'd have scores of music. He even wrote pieces of music. One I love is called the Dominion March, probably the most famous one he produced. Da, 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 da. And then it goes on and on. That's sort of the chorus. But it was called the Dominion March because he loved Canada. He thought it was an amazing place. And so I've never had this confirmed by anybody, but I believe listening to that music, and I studied it and learned to play it, uh, even got to play it once uh, with my father and my grandfather, who was the son of the composer, who I never met, Philippi the blind composer, I never met him, but the three of us got to play it together on three di on the organ and two other pianos in the same household, and that was a special memory. I also got to play it at a big event uh, celebrating 50, no, would it have been 50 years? Uh, maybe 50 years of the Montreal Association for the Blind, and they had a special event, and uh, they asked me to come and play it, because I guess amongst those who were around who'd studied the music, I might have uh, been the best player of that particular music, whatever. Uh, I played it, and I watched the blind faces at the front uh, who were in tears, because they were in Leighton Hall, at the uh, Montreal Association for the Blind, where most of them had learned a, a trade or a craft, had learned how to read Braille, had learned maybe how to use the seeing eye dog, white cane. All of those programs were brought to Montreal, generally from England, by uh, Philip E. Layton, our ancestor. He has always been my inspiration, absolutely my inspiration, because I think of this blinded kid, you know, saying, I want to leave, I don't want to be treated like a cripple. Well, he ends up coming and raising all kinds of money to build this uh, Montreal Association for the Blind. He broke all kinds of rules. Uh, taboos. There were editorials written against him in the Globe, in the uh, not the Globe, I think, but uh, the Montreal Gazette, saying, "Imagine sending young women out to raise money on the street corner." They called it a tag day in those days. 
Nowadays, we have ribbons, like the white ribbon campaign. You sell the ribbon, raise a little bit of money. And uh, they did that with something called Tag Days, except they sent young women out uh, and blind people out. Well, you weren't supposed to have young women or blind people out raising money on the street corner. Uh, that was immoral in the eyes of the good burghers of Montreal at the time. Uh, well, he thought that was nonsense, and he went so far as to filling the Montreal Forum for a big event to raise the final money to buy a farm way out in the boonies. It later became embraced in in the city of Montreal, and um, and we ended up being born uh, or raised in the earliest days in a street just up the street from this so-called uh, farm in the boonies, uh, which had, of course, rapidly become a big success story out by Loyola College. And uh, the result was they raised enough money to uh, end up training hundreds and hundreds of young people, <clears throat> providing seniors housing for blind people, particularly including veterans. And then, uh, then my grandpa said, well, wait a minute, it's not right that there should be so many poor blind people. It's basically the luck of the draw. If you have a family that's affluent enough to look after you at home, then you'll, you'll get some care. Uh, but suppose you don't. Suppose you have nobody looking after you. You might have fought for your country in World War II, or you're just an, an elderly single man. A lot of these guys weren't necessarily able to marry, uh, and you have no income. You've got nothing. You're living in abject poverty. You're having to beg on the streets the days of the blind, selling pencils, you know, and some punk would walk by, you know, and kick your pencils away, and the kids would run off laughing, thinking they'd done something funny. Well, they had done something fundamentally unjust. And uh, my, my great-grandpa thought that was wrong. And he said, we should have... Meanwhile, he'd been reading up on what was going on in the States with uh, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, who in the middle of the Depression brought forward a whole program called the New Deal. And the New Deal was, we're going to make sure everybody gets a job and everybody gets to live out of poverty. And if you can't work and you're fundamentally disabled, we're going to make sure you've got a basic level of support. And so he took that idea of a pension, as it were, and he started out saying, for blind men over 45, they're never going to get a job of any kind. It's just not going to happen. So let's get them a pension. Particularly, let's start, let's start with the veterans. He knew his politics and that people would support the veterans. And of course, if you were giving it to the veterans, you ought to give it to all the other vets in a similar condition, whether or not they fought in the war. And uh, the first, one of the very first people he met on Parliament Hill was Tommy Douglas, who had just been elected a young, new member of Parliament. He was an MP before he became Premier of Saskatchewan uh, for uh, a term, I, I believe it was. And he found a kindred spirit there because Tommy and J.S. Woodsworth, the founder, the first leader of the CCF, NDP, the party that I now have the honor to lead, uh, uh, these, these uh, folks really hit it off because their values of making sure everybody had the basic needs and starting with just a basic income so they could survive. And he took, it to, uh, he took this idea to a committee uh, of, uh, on Parliament Hill. Uh, the NDP members proposed legislation to give effect to it, amendments to it. It was the unemployment insurance legislation at the time. And they succeeded. And the first disabled pension was established for people in Canada. Hi.
Hi, Nancy, and welcome to Triple Vision. Thank you very much. So I'm a bit of a blindness historian myself. So I've, I'm familiar with the Leighton family name as it pertains to, to blindness in Canada. But could you tell us a little bit about your family's multiple generations of commitment to public service in our country? Um, yes, well, it started with my great-grandfather, uh, Philip E. Layton, who uh, in his late teens, early 20s, uh, suffered an accident and lost the vision in his eyes. And at that point, of course, there weren't many options for uh, visually impaired people, and he became uh, trained as a piano tuner and uh, actually received his uh, tuner's kit, uh, I gather, from the Prince of Wales or one of the members of the royal family back uh, in, in England. And he came over to Canada uh, because he'd been given, offered a job or been accepted for a job as an organist at one of the Montreal churches. And when he arrived and they discovered that he was blind, uh, they rescinded the offer. Wow. So... Uh, he ended up uh, remaining in Montreal uh, along with his brother, who I believe was Herbert, and uh, they opened a uh, a business with uh, making and selling pianos. And uh, so that's how he got his start here in Montreal. And then from there, in the early 1900 or so, he, uh, along with a few others, decided that there was a need for opportunities for visually impaired people to socialize and to spend time together. And so that's where the genesis of the Montreal Association for the Blind uh, began. And as a social club, and it uh, was uh, came to fruition in 1908. And when you talk about other family, his wife Alice was a, a driving force uh, obviously, she was his eyes and I guess was a pretty uh, remarkable woman in her own right. And then uh, Philip's son, Gilbert, uh, became very involved with the Association for the Blind, as did his wife, Nora, who uh, founded what was known as the Cheerio Club that met every week. And uh, so my grandmother, in fact, I remember her being honored for uh, 60 years of volunteer service to the Association for the Blind. And then my dad, Robert Layton, uh, was on the board for many, many years, chaired the board uh, until he was elected to Parliament. And uh, I also served on the board um, from uh, the early 1980 for probably about 12 or 14 years. So the family has kept its involvement with visually impaired people in a number of different ways through both volunteer service and uh, with an interest in uh, how uh, the association has been able to continue serving visually impaired people in Montreal and in Quebec in general. So I noticed you, you said the Montreal Association for the Blind uh was uh, started in 1908. I also see that there's a Philip E. Layton School for the Blind that was started, English-speaking school for the blind that was also started in 1908. Was that an affiliation with the MAB? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. The school was uh, started, uh, and in, and I'm not sure at what point it was named after my great-grandfather, but it uh, it it was begun, and I can remember visiting the school one time. It had both residential and day students, 
And I remember one time, I don't know how old I was, maybe a young teenager, and I was with my father who had a board meeting. And so I was in and I had uh, supper with uh, the the students. And I can remember thinking this room is awfully dark uh, because, of course, they didn't require a great deal of lighting. And so it was uh, for for me, it was one of my first uh, exposures to uh, visually impaired. But yes, there was a school, um, a sheltered workshop, uh, a Braille library, uh, lending library, uh, were all components of the uh, Montreal Association for the Blind as it as it first got started. Nancy, um, your great-grandfather, uh, Philip A. Layton, was really a driving force. There wasn't a lot happening for individuals who were, who were blind in Canada at the time. We know that organizations like the CNIB got started 10 years after that. So is that sort of the impression that you that you got, that he was a real tra- trailblazer, that he was really, in many, many ways, quite ahead of his time? Yes, he was a... a a driving force, especially in Montreal. He took advantage of the fact that he had tuned the pianos of so many of the well-known and, uh, let's say, more well-to-do Montrealers on what I think they referred to as the Golden Mile. And so when it came time to uh, try and raise funds to get programs and, and a facility and so on for the Montreal Association for the Blind, he leaned on those connections and I can't remember the exact families, but I know when I've been in the uh, building that they show some of the original uh, donors. There might have been a Burks uh, or a Molson or those kind of people that uh, supported it at the time. And the other thing about Philippi was uh, he he really felt that the visually impaired deserved to be treated equally and to have the same opportunities. And so I know uh, one of his initiatives uh, that has been adopted for all kinds of purposes is the idea of a campaign, a fundraising campaign, uh, which they call the White Cane Campaign. And they use that to uh, give the general population an opportunity to donate towards uh, the Association for the Blind. So you and the family have a, have had a strong connection with the Montreal Association for the Blind. You said you were on its board until uh, what year? Probably the the uh, the late the mid to late uh, 1995-96. I was until then I was living in the city, but then I moved out to the eastern townships uh, to uh, to take on a new position. And traveling back and forth uh, was uh, not not really useful for the MAB or for me. So. Uh, I stepped away. I think I'm. I think I'm still considered an honorary director. But uh, uh, yes, we. Uh, I, I do try and take an interest as much as I can. But mm-hmm. of course, uh, living a little further afield, it's uh, it's not the same. Have you seen many changes in that time since you've been involved and the families that been involved? Have you seen so that the blindness movement in Quebec change anyway compared to oh, very much when you so, first started? Uh, in part because of the provincial structure for uh, for social services. Uh, the MAB falls under that uh, umbrella, and so there are certain requirements and uh, that, that have had to be followed. A lot of the funding uh, for programs comes from provincial uh, ministries, whether it's health, education, but at the same time, uh, the MAB wanted to, wanted to ensure that there was support given from 
sort of almost pre pre birth or at birth right through until uh, someone's final days. So the school evolved. The uh, at one point they had a wing that was called the Wilder Penfield Wing that was for uh, post school. Uh, young people that uh, needed assistance. They were uh, going out to try and find jobs. They were trying to learn to be independent. Uh, And so that was sort of another wing. They had a residential wing for many, many years. In fact, my grandmother, Nora, uh, spent her final days in that residence uh, as it was kind of very special because it was their way of saying thank you to to her for all the years mm-hmm. of service uh, when uh, she was uh, suffering from cancer. And uh, mm. uh, so they were happy to be able to help her uh, be comfortable towards the end. Um, so the, the, the MAB has changed, too, in the sense that it's, it's joined forces with several other rehabilitation or support organizations, the Mackay Center for mm-hmm. the Deaf and Intellectually Challenged Children, and also the Constance Lethbridge uh, Rehabilitation Institute. And the three organizations decided after a lot of discussion that they were stronger being one voice representing three than three voices each Mm -hmm. trying to uh, lobby uh, the government and those kind of things. So they now no longer refer to the Montreal Association for the Blind. I believe it's called the Lethbridge Leighton Mackay Center and uh, the foundation uh, supports all three programs as well. Uh, the the factory is no more. It used to make brooms. It used to do weaving and things like that. And I think I may have been in there once when I was younger. Uh, so there's a lot of so there's been both physical change and change in the programs and what's offered. The the infant uh, program is unbelievable. And I think the other thing, too, is that so much of uh, what what the association does, what the MAB does, is it's not just visual impairment. A okay. lot of the clients have more than one problem, and they're in wheelchairs. They need, uh, you know, they've got multiple handicaps, as well as perhaps intellectual handicaps. So uh, the kinds of services have just gotten larger and larger over the years. So it sounds like the the center has had a, a the status in the provincial government as a rehabilitation facility for sure. Then, oh, definitely, yes, it's it would be recognized. I, I believe its mandate would be for all Anglophones uh, in the province, and then I, I know that they also serve uh, to some extent Francophones who might need something. Uh, there is Louis Braille is the I think the one that is. Uh, also offers services in French in uh, in Quebec. Is the uh, residence still operating, Nancy? Uh, no, uh, that was one of the ones that, with uh, the different government regulations and uh, requirements, uh, the kind of support that uh, the, the seniors' residents needed uh, was really impractical and uh, not possible for the MAB. And the uh, the residence for the kids for school, I believe, was phased out even before then. Uh, so okay. it was uh, some time ago that they mm-hmm. stopped doing that. And a lot of the students attend regular schools uh, if they are able to, and then they get support uh, use it with itinerant teachers to, um, in terms of what they might need uh, for, for support and uh, services such as that. 
So are there uh, members of the younger generation of the Leighton family that are taking an interest in the MAB, or has that changed? It's been hard because uh, uh, there's only two of us of my generation that still live in Quebec. Uh, we did have quite a, a reunion when the MAB celebrated its centennial, and I guess we were probably about 45 of us came to Montreal to be part of the celebration and to recognize uh, the family's contribution. So there's, there is an interest, but in terms of being able to really get involved, it's not something that uh, they can do. So they get involved in their own communities, uh, and perhaps that's part of the legacy we have from Philippi and from Gilbert and from my dad that you get involved in whatever you can, wherever you can. And I watched the blind faces at the front uh, who were in tears because they were in Leighton Hall at the uh, Montreal Association for the Blind where most of them had learned a, a trade or a craft, had learned how to read Braille, had learned maybe how to use a sight, a seeing eye dog, white cane. All of those programs were brought to Montreal, generally from England, by uh, Philip E. Leighton, our ancestor. He has always been my inspiration, absolutely my inspiration. So I hope you've enjoyed that podcast. I found it fascinating. We've moved from 1908 and the formation of the Montreal Association for the Blind and learned a lot about a, a very prominent family in Canada and their ongoing contribution to the blind community. And in our next episode, we're going to bump ourselves up to the 1970s and talk to a very busy blind advocate, John Ray, from Ontario, and he's going to talk to us about the Boost organization, which was formed in the 70s as a consumer advocacy organization. So we'll move a little farther along the dateline and find out what was happening in Ontario at that time in terms of advocacy. So please stay tuned and we'll see you next time. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21. Hi, I'm Red Sale, the host of My Life in Books on AMI-audio. Join me on Mondays at 1pm Eastern Time as I chat with a selection of renowned authors to read between the lines of their latest work, riffle through their back pages, and discover which books inspired them to pick up the pen. That's My Life in Books with me, Red Sale, Mondays at 1pm Eastern Time on AMI-audio or download the podcast from your favourite provider.